Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Katie Myers, sitting in for Scott Lamar today. Our first guests are going to be on different sides of Philadelphia's contentious soda tax. GOP Representative Mark Mustio is trying to get rid of the tax, while Donna Cooper, Director of Public Citizens for Children and Youth, says the tax really helps kids. And later, Capital Wire Bureau Chief Chris Komisak joins us for a rundown of a busy week in Harrisburg. First on the line is Representative Mustio. Uh, Representative, are you there? I am. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. Thanks for coming on. Um, So this soda tax, it was enacted January 2017, so more than a year ago at this point. Uh, Initial goals were to fund universal pre-kindergarten in Philly, to fund community schools, uh, revitalize parks and other uh, community areas. And, you know, as a side effect, it was sort of intended to bolster public health, get people to drink less soda. So I want to ask, because you are now sponsoring a bill to get rid of the tax and more than that, uh, get rid of, you know, future taxes in other municipalities in Pennsylvania. So I want to ask you, first off, um, give me a rundown of what the bill is. Yes, the, the purpose of the bill is to prohibit uh, local governments from taxing food, beverages, um, or food and beverage containers, unless authorized by the uh, Commonwealth. And I think that's really the main, the main point here, is that the uh, Philadelphia went beyond the scope of the Sterling Act. And uh, that act is what allows the city to impose taxes, um, but it does not let them impose taxes, impose taxes on um, items that are already taxed. And there's already a sales tax on on those beverages. So that's really the issue. The issue is not whether we support, you know, healthier lives or early childhood education. There's a process that we go through to implement funding in the Commonwealth, and it's our position, those um, that are supporting the legislation, that Philadelphia did not do it the proper way. Um, For example, in Allegheny County, when they sought additional funding, they came to the state for an across the um, bar tax, and and that was approved by the legislature. Um, so that's what we're saying in Philadelphia. They need to go through that same type of process. If there is a desire for the tax, then come to the legislature, and we'll authorize it. For example, when they came to the legislature for the cigarette tax, I, I was one of those that voted in favor of that to help Philadelphia. You know, when there was the increased gas tax and appropriating money for SEPTA. I was one that supported that. And what this legislation is saying, that local governments have authority to tax in certain areas, but this is not one of them. And if they want that authority to do that, then they need to come to the Commonwealth to get it. And there is a Supreme Court case sort of working its way through on this tax right now. But I do want to talk to you just a little bit about the substance of the tax. Um, In your memo on this bill, you did say that uh, singling out one economic sector with an unfair tax is nonsensical. And then you also said it's critical we help the city maintain access to fresh foods and groceries while protecting thousands of jobs in the industry. Um, So, I mean, clearly there is some, I think, ideological bent to all this, right? Well, there is. I guess you could you could stretch it to that. But in Pittsburgh, I, I'm from the suburbs sure. of Pittsburgh, and over the period of decades, there have been times in the city where there have not been grocery stores, and they call those basically food deserts, right? So um, I'm very cognizant to the fact that the more taxes that you impose on certain items, and sales go down, and people decide to buy elsewhere that that's going to possibly have an impact on business. And I think we're starting to see that in Philadelphia. So, again, it gets back to, um, you know, 
in my opinion, the they enacted a, a tax that was not um, in their authority to do so. And that's, again, a, a, something that's being worked out in the courts at this point. But... Well, it's being worked out in the courts because they've, in, in our opinion, have not interpreted correctly. So what this legislation does is it reiterates what the intent of the legislature was. And so if, if, if they're going to read it differently, and perhaps other parts of the state will try and read it differently too, we're going with this legislation, we're going to make it clear. Um, and what the intent of that original legislation was. Real quick, we'd had a caller um, in who couldn't stay on the line, but Linda in Hummelstown, she asked, does the tax also include alcoholic beverages? N- no, it does not. It's just, it's soda, basically. Um, sweet drinks. Well, it's all, it's all sweet. It's all sweet. Um, I mean, it's even, it's even diet sodas, right, that don't have sure, sugar in sure. them. But it's almond milk, um, you know, those types of, even some orange juices. So that that's correct. But the the, the legislation itself addresses food as well. Gotcha. Now, um, Representative, I do want to ask you, I mean, you mentioned grocery stores. You mentioned um, specifically in your legislation, um, or you've said in elsewhere that uh, you're concerned that this is going to impact lower income areas. You mentioned food deserts happening in Pittsburgh, and I know, gosh, they've happened in a lot of cities. Um, But I am curious. I mean, so you say this is going to be a bad thing for lower income Philadelphians? Well, I think any time you impose a tax that's a you know on on every item like this, that certainly those that don't have as much money as others, it's going to have more of an impact on them. Sure. Sure. And um, there have been studies. I think uh, people from lower income brackets tend to be higher consumers of things like soda as well. But I am curious. I mean, part of this there I think is a public health bent to this. And now. I am a little bit curious. I mean, do you think that, you know, making it so people are not buying as much soda, which is, as we know, a very unhealthy thing, is that not a public good in some ways? Again, it gets back to the original intent of the legislation, right? I mean, our original, the Sterling Act says you're not allowed to tax these items. So if they want to be in a position to do it, come to the legislature to make those changes. All right. And but again, I mean, and this is being fought out on multiple platforms. Um, I, I agree with that. And, and the sound bites are great. I mean, we want to we want to fight obesity. We want to fund childhood education. I'm not opposed to any of those items. I'm saying there's a there's a proper way, a legal way to do it. And in, in our opinion, they violated that. And because it's not clear, apparently, we're going to have this legislation come out of committee on May 1st and hopefully get it onto the voting calendar soon thereafter so we can have this robust debate. Right. And I'm assuming it will be a very robust debate on the on the floor. Um, but we've got just a couple minutes left. So what, what sort of support has this bill gotten so far? Well, it's broad support. In fact, some of the polling that's been done, it's you know over sixty percent, even in even in the Philadelphia consumer market. So, um, I, I think that um, we're going to have a broad coalition of support. Obviously, those that are in the business of selling it, but consumers seem to be on board as well across the state. Um, and we have some even have some union support uh, from the Teamsters on this as well. All right, um, and real quick, uh, I do want to ask you. Uh, well, we actually, we have a call on the line, if you can stay on the line for one moment. This is sure. John in Harrisburg. Um, John, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hi, John. What's your question? Hi. Uh, my question goes to uh, the representative. Is How do they expect uh, Philadelphia City to be able to balance the city budget, given the limited constraints 
that the state legislator basically has shackled the city of Philadelphia, not just that, but the city of Philadelphia school district, to be able to raise local funds. I mean, you can't have a city municipality have to go to the state legislature every single time that needs to have money for some type of local tax purposes. There's 6,700 different local tax municipalities in the state of Pennsylvania, which is insane. But the fact that you have one special out tax municipality that cannot actually raise funds, it doesn't have a local income tax that it could use as a tax base. It's all based off of real estate business taxes, which they can't even leverage that way. They have to do an outside uh, business tax for people coming in and working in that way from an income tax, but their tax ability and ability to raise funds is extremely limited. So why they're being issued with a vice tax, which you don't need to actually have to survive, is just obscene. All right. Thank you, John. Representative, do you have an answer for, you know, John's question? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's that's the other side of the argument. There are those that always look to raise taxes, right? Um, Philadelphia has, you know, if you buy a sales tax there, it's 8%. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they come to us for a higher cigarette tax. You know, very rarely do we see – that's why we had to put this – there was a school reform commission, right? Very rarely do you see, hey, we got a great idea on how we can do things more efficiently and cost-effectively. So um, certainly – Budget constraints will force you to think creatively in most parts of the state. Some parts of the state, they immediately say, we got to go get more income. But and apparently that's, that's the avenue that they're taking here. But shouldn't be that, that be the municipality's prerogative to say, well, this is how we're going to do this? That is not the municipality's prerogative based on the Sterling Act. All right. If they want to change the Sterling Act, then go for it. Representative, um, I think we are out of time. So thank you so much for All coming right. on. Thanks so much. All Enjoy right. your weekend. You too. Bye. All right. Next, we are going to have um, Donna Cooper, Director of Public Citizens for Children and Youth, who is on the other side of this debate. Um, But first, uh, we're going to take a quick break. You are listening to Smart Talk on WITF, and we will be back in a few. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Katie Meyer. We are discussing the Philadelphia soda tax right now. Um, We just heard from Representative Mark Mustio, who is against the tax, trying to introduce legislation to get rid of it. And now we're going to hear from Donna Cooper, Director of Public Citizens for Children and Youth, who says the tax has been great for children. Um, We welcome your questions and comments. Call us at 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at WITF. ITF.org or leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Now we have Donna on the line. Donna, are you there? I am. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I think good you... Morning. Good morning. So you listened, I think, to um, the first segment there with Representative Mustio. Obviously, you have a different perspective on this whole thing. Um, I want to just introduce uh, what you think the tax you know, has done so far. Sure. I mean, the first thing the tax has done is enabled 2,000 children to go to high-quality pre-K in Philadelphia. Um, And so that means that another 2,000 kids enter our schools by the time they're in kindergarten ready to learn. And if you talk to the parents of the children who are in these pre-K programs or look in the eyes of the children who are in the programs, you know the impact it's making, in addition to the fact that it has caused the employment of hundreds and hundreds of people who are working in the early childhood sector. So um, while that's a small group of people, 2,000 to benefit from a broad uh, tax on an industry, the beverage industry, 
Um, in fact, once this court case is over, that number of children who will be going to high-quality pre-K will grow to 5,500. But in addition, it's also enabled us to uh, launch eight community schools in Philadelphia and uh, speaking with those community school coordinators, uh, which we hope will go up to 25. Uh, after the court case, you can really see the difference in connecting families to employment, to um, job training services, getting children health care services that they otherwise had a hard time getting access to, building partnerships that boost school attendance. Um, so with a little bit of resource in each of these schools, we're seeing great gains. And um, we hope that once the court suit's over and we win, we'll see a major rehabilitation of the parks and recreation system, our child-serving spaces in Philadelphia. So it's a very large um, change for the next generation, and uh, this is um, uh, what we think is a reasonable response to the urgent needs of the, of the next generation that have been unaddressed by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And uh, that court case you referenced, that's the one that we were talking about with Representative Mustio about whether or not this uh, tax violates the Sterling Act. But uh, And so I understand, I mean, that some of the components, the major components of this tax have been sort of in a holding pattern because of this case. Um, a lot of the tax right now goes back into the general fund, not specifically to stated causes. Um, in fiscal year 2017, $30 million went into the general fund, not into specific programs. Uh, so so far, as of, I think, early March of this year, $32.9 million went to the general fund, far you know, less going. Th and it, that was out of $45.2 million that the tax generated overall. So, I mean, clearly, most of the money generated here is not going to these you know, programs that you describe. Neither is it being spent by the general fund. It's being held there. So think of the general fund as a bank account. Uh, that money is sitting in that bank account waiting for this court case to be over. It's not like the soda, the beverage tax that's been enacted is funding police services. Uh, it is being held, um, and once this court case is over, those funds can then buoy the rollout of the rebuild effort, the community schools, and the pre-K programs. Um, so uh, the idea of the general fund is a term that the acts the tax coalition has used effectively to make people think this is some kind of slush fund for city government, and that isn't what's happening at all. In fact, the city controller confirmed that the money is being held there. Um, so when people hear the term general fund, think of a bank account. It's the city's bank account, but it is not spending those money, those funds on other city operations. It's holding them. And if the court case were withdrawn, those funds would be immediately available for the intended purposes. Uh, we have a caller on the line. This is Andy in Philadelphia. Andy, are you there? I'm here. I'm <laughs> driving, but I hear every word. <laughs> All right, Andy, uh, if you do safely while driving, um, let us know. What's your question? Okay, I'm a fountain syrup distributor in Philadelphia. I, uh, I sell a box of private label fountain concentrate for $60. The Philadelphia beverage tax on that $60 box is $57.60. My question is, uh, do you believe that this is the best possible way to fund uh, pre-K? Donna? I think Andy asked a great question. Of course, the answer would be no. Uh, if we had a graduated income tax in Pennsylvania, we would have the resources to do this. 
if the state legislature were to increase the uh, state resources and in in even the flat tax that we have, we would have the resources to do this. Uh, Philadelphia, and believe me, Pittsburgh is looking at its own dedicated tax for children. We are starving in the largest population centers of this state. Our children are suffering because the state legislature does not have the uh, intention, gumption, or courage to put the resources on the table that we know are essential for our children to succeed. And so Philadelphia has stepped forward, and we know Pittsburgh will be trying to do the same in the fall, to say we can't let our children be held hostage by a uh, relatively weak-kneed state legislature that, will, that has a hard time finding the resources for our kids. Now, I will say, let's be very clear, the Pennsylvania legislature has been investing in pre-K, um, and I commend them for that. But even their uh, most strenuous efforts to put pre-K funds on the table have resulted in only 36% of the kids in the state being able to get access to high-quality pre-K. Um, looking at New Jersey, looking at Maryland, looking at Massachusetts, places that are knocking our, our socks off in terms of pre-K access and school performance, we need to do this for our kids. And I would encourage Andy to join with others who are trying to get the state legislature to have a more rational approach to taxes that would ensure that our children get what are needed. So this is not an ideal solution, but it's one that Philadelphia was able to do uh, pending this court decision on its own. So that's what makes it attractive. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you know, when we had to go to Philadelphia, I'm sorry, when we had to go to the Harrisburg and ask them to let us uh, have uh, 1% of the sales tax, not an increase, but 1% of the existing sales tax for the schools, or to pass the liquor by the drink tax for the schools, or to pass the cigarette tax for the schools, um, all of those were um, tough decisions to make locally, but they were the only way we could see getting the investment that we need. Um, sure. Our kids in Philly are, are not getting the resources that they need to succeed. And I really challenge Representative Musto's, Mustio's framework around efficiencies. We've closed 26 schools here. We have the lowest school uh, administrative budget in the Commonwealth. To suggest that Philadelphia's education system isn't getting more efficient belies the facts. Uh, but the fact, but we have a lot of kids. It's expensive. There's a lot of people that live here. And to do this right and, and make sure they're ready for the next generation to take over Andy's business in the future, uh, we need to invest more. All right. And I do want to ask you, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, obviously said the tax is not ideal, but it's not bringing in as money as much money as anticipated. Uh, in the latest pr budget proposal from Mayor Kenny, uh, the projected revenues were lowered by about 15 uh, percent. It's probably going to bring in around 78.8, so almost $80 million in the current fiscal year, which is a solid like $13 million less than what the city had planned for. So, I mean, are these, is this disappointing? Do you, uh, is there concern that this tax is not going to be able to do what you guys had initially wanted it to do? Uh, not at all. I mean, look, obviously it's disappointing that the revenues are coming in lower, but anybody that's going to sneeze at $78 million doesn't understand revenues. Um, so $78 million coming in on the beverage tax is more than the Commonwealth is putting up in terms of new pre-K dollars for the entire state. So, in fact, it's double. So, uh, yeah, of course we wish that the uh, beverage tax was generating more, and um, but I think there's both the external competition, meaning surrounding communities, and there's also people drinking less sweetened beverages, and that's a good thing. 
Um, but I am very pleased to say that there is $78 million that is available for our children. And um, again, were the Commonwealth to think that was a bad thing, they could pony up. That's not what's being offered on this table. What's being offered on this table is to remove our right to raise money for our kids, and they're not suggesting they're going to compensate for those revenues. And then we just have a couple of minutes left here, but I do want to ask you, there's been some um, sort of preliminary surveys of business owners and not like, you know, soda corporation people, people who own corner stores, people who own grocery stores, things like that, who have said this is really cutting into their revenue. And I think you said yourself before, I mean, this is a pretty broad based tax for that's supposed to be benefiting a, a fairly small population. Um, you know, is is the trade off worth it? Absolutely. Um, look, when kids start school ready to learn, our school district spends less money on special education services. When kids start school ready to learn, our teachers can operate more effective classrooms. So, um, you know, certainly any kind of tax has winners and losers. If you were to survey early childhood providers, they would say they've grown jobs, they've gotten greater stability, they have full classrooms, and they're, with their new employees, they're creating more of a ripple effect in their own community. When we start the construction on rebuild, you survey construction companies, they'll say they've expanded employment, they have better revenues. So there's winners and losers in any tax. And what acts the tax has effectively done is keep pulling the people who are affected by this negatively. And I think they, re- they have failed to, as others have failed to, really talk to the sector that's benefiting. But there is no tax you know, like it or not, right, that doesn't have winners or losers. And the winners in this, in my mind, are the, are the future. And they're all of us because these kids are going to be uh, much more prepared for the challenges ahead. Uh, just a minute left. Um, you've got this bill now moving through the legislature. Do you guys have, you know, any plans for counter legislation for, you know, fighting against this effort to get rid of the tax and prevent future ones? Well, I, I think that our plan is, as we said when we testified last fall, which is if the legislature is so concerned about Philadelphia using the powers that it has to invest in our children, then their best option is to compensate for that investment. Um, if you don't want to see municipalities um, exercise, which is our right to tax the beverage industry, there's, there's nothing about this that's illegal in spite of what Re- Representative Mustio has said, If that is of a concern to them, then take the action at the state level, do a broad-based tax, and fund pre-K so our children have access to these services. We can't be left behind. All right. That is Donna Cooper, Director of Public Citizens for Children and Youth. Donna, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, Chris Kamasak of Capital Wire is going to help us with a rundown of this week in Harrisburg. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Katie Meyer, and we are talking now with Chris Kamasak, the Capital Bureau Chief for Capital Wire. Katie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So we had a busy day this week, uh, sort of a, a rare week where the Senate and the House are both in, both kind of active. Um, Senate had a relatively quiet week. They're going to be in next week again. But uh, the House did a bunch of things, yep. a bunch of things that people have lots of opinions about. Right. right. One of those things uh, was an abortion bill, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically a bill that would ban abortions done specifically for um, fetuses who are found to have Down syndrome. Yes. So um, why don't you just get, I mean, what was kind of the the, uh, conception of this bill? 
Well, I think uh, uh, the House Speaker Mike Terzai and um, I think Representative uh, Ward, they're the prime sponsors of the bill, and um, it's their opinion that everyone matters, everyone has a right to life, and anyone who is diagnosed with Down syndrome uh, is entitled to be born and, you know, see what type of life they can have. Mm -hmm. And so this bill, I mean, it specifically would criminalize doing an abortion under these circumstances. Yes, for medical providers. For medical providers. And uh, it it is sort of interesting, like, how it would be enforced, because there are lots of... The question is whether it could be enforced. (laughs) Whether it could be enforced, right. I mean, and there's, you know, lots of questions about, uh, you know, like gestation time, when Mm -hmm. a fetus is viable. Um, But really, I mean, abortions happen for lots of reasons. And, you know, who is to say that Down syndrome is the primary one i don't i don't think anyone disputes that they're done for a variety of reasons i think they're just trying to put down a marker that says for this specific reason you really shouldn't be aborting a baby Mm -hmm. Uh, again as you noted there are plenty of uh different views on this uh there was a interesting coalition of some conservative Democrats, or at least conservative Democrats, on the abortion issue and Republicans uh, voting for this. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, th- th- this bill got more votes than uh, a welfare <laughs> a welfare work bill yeah. uh, that we'll talk about shortly. Um, but the Democrats that voted against it uh, made it perfectly clear that they think it violates the Constitution. Uh Yes. Um, Infringing upon a woman's right to to choose to have an abortion. Right. That'd be the 14th Amendment. um, Um, Abortion's protected. uh, That it uh, interferes between uh, the the relationship between a doctor and a patient, Mm -hmm. uh, which we're told legislators shouldn't be doing, but they regularly do it. (laughs) They love to do that. It's one of their favorite things. Um, And so, yeah, so there was a ton of debate on this this week. I mean, the upshot of this, I I do want to note, actually. So this is sort of Pennsylvania is a funny state. Uh, People think of abortion often as being a very partisan issue. Mm -hmm. Here, it kind of isn't so much. We get a lot of Democrats. And I think this is changing um, as the years go by. But Mm -hmm. it's been this way for years and years where a lot of Democrats are pro-life and they will vote for these bills. And now this bill, and I think the fact that we're talking about it in in the frame of being pro-life, pro-choice is mm-hmm. telling because a lot of its supporters bill it as a disability rights bill. Right. Is that accurate? I guess it all depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, there was a, there was an awful lot of debate uh, from the, the, the Democrats that voted against it saying that if this truly is a disability rights bill, then maybe the Republicans should be throwing more money uh, for right. disability-related uh, programs. And there were lots of attempts in committee to, and on the floor, actually, to amend this bill to... Even though those amendments were unconstitutional at the time. Well, <laughs> <laughs> why were they unconstitutional? Was it the one subject rule? It's a or? single subject yeah. rule, yeah. So, you had a bill that was dealing with the criminalization of a, of a particular type of procedure, and they were trying to create uh, funding streams for various programs, which... You know, the, you can't I, I think you could argue that it, because it's a disability bill, you could say, oh, we're protecting this class of yeah. people and also putting more money. You could make that argument. You can make the argument, but the courts have clearly said that <laughs> when the subject is this over here and you're trying to add an entirely separate subject sure. in the law uh, to a bill, it's a violation. So anyway, but these um, at the point that people were making right. by introducing these amendments was that, no, this isn't about disability right. rights. They were it's, trying to draw attention to the fact that, you know, if you're going to 
require more babies with Down syndrome to be born. There's going to be an increase in need for programs for babies with Down syndrome. Right. And so we need to make sure that there's more money provided to those services and programs. Mm-hmm. And now Republicans would defend this. They'd say, well, we have plenty of money going. Well, they have it. been increasing money for, for intellectual disability programs and things like that. It's just... Not at great rates. It, well, it's been an increase. It's just you're going to see a much larger population requiring services if this were to be legal, which, I mean, the governor's not going to sign it. The governor's not going to sign it. I do want to get into that. I mean, so this is passed the House at this point, Mm -hmm. which is not shocking. Um, They usually pass abortion bills. Senate hasn't said what they'll do on it. It'll be a much slower pace in the Senate. Yeah, so I don't think they're going to take it up immediately. But eventually they probably would have the votes to pass something like this. If it comes up, yes. Yeah, if it comes up. But then when it gets to Governor Wolf, um, there's virtually no chance he's going to sign that. pretty much said that he's going to be doing Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and this kind of bill, like, say something crazy were to happen and it would have to become law in Pennsylvania. Say (laughs) Wolf gets voted out, it comes back up next year. Yeah. Um, These bills have been declared unconstitutional in other states. Well, they've they've at least been challenged as being unconstitutional. And uh, there are various. struck down in, I think, Illinois. Uh, Well, I think Ohio, there's been an injunctive order. Uh, made. Uh, they're all still working their way through the legal process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. But th- significant legal problems have been yes. attached to these sorts of bills. Any abortion bill is going to get sued. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it will. All right. Um, so, k- kind of bad prognosis for this particular bill in the legislature. There was a lot of bad, a lot of bills this week that had bad prognoses. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, and I think that's kind of par for the course when you have a GOP legislature and yeah. a Democratic governor who hates a lot of what they're doing. Plus, you have a election cycle that uh, one side is going to needle the other side with various bills like this one. This is true. Um, Just a note, if uh, you have a question or comment, we welcome that. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532. You can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org, or you can leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. The number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, Chris. Uh, work requirements. Yeah, switching gears. Another super fun one. Yeah. Um, so this would do what? Uh, it would take a portion of the population that currently receives Medicaid health insurance benefits and require some sort of work-related activity for them to continue their eligibility for those benefits. So work-related activity in this case would be, I think, a minimum of or 20 hours of work, work per week. Um, and or at least seeking work or something. Or I mean, seeking it, work. It will all come down to how someone defines that. Right. Know. Or they have to be in job training classes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now the kind of connotation of that is people are going to be responsible for a lot of documentation. Yeah. Especially if they're like, you know, seeking jobs. I mean, I would have a hard time documenting that I'm doing that. I guess I can say I sent my resume to this, 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 and this place. Yeah. But, um, I mean, we do that part of the unemployment program, so sure. <laughs> but this is Medicaid, yeah. Um, and so this is health insurance. This is people who need health insurance, mm-hmm. and this is primarily people who are covered under Medicaid expansion. This is Correct. able-bodied people who have Medicaid. I think it's you know they have to be an adult. I think nineteen and sixty-four is the age range, or sixty-five. Yeah. And um, people with young children are exempt. People oh, yeah, with permanent whole host disabilities of, yeah. are exempt. Pregnant women are exempt. So You name it. There's pretty much an exemption there for anybody who 
really is looking for one. <laughs> so what was, again, what are people, and this is a pretty partisan issue, obviously, yes. Republicans who are sponsoring this, what are they saying is the um, benefit of this? Well, I think the, the, the concern is that of that population you spoke of that received uh, Medicaid through the expansion, uh, a large portion of them are not reporting any income, which means they're not working. And Republicans believe that if you're working, you have a much better chance of not requiring any type of welfare benefits and having a much more fruitful life. So they're trying to come at it from the perspective of we can get them into some sort of work-related activity. We can get them into even a part-time job at 20 hours a week. That will put them on the path to not requiring these benefits in the future and you know, make, making them happier people. It will also reduce the state's uh, right. burden. Saying, they for... don't usually you know, do legislation like this just to make people happy. No, no. The, the, the big problem is with a half a million people who are not – or roughly a half a million people who are not reporting any income – uh, there's a pretty su- substantial burden on state taxpayers. Well, and, and that's a, a point of contention, how substantial it is. I think a lot of people who are on the other side of this issue would argue that, no, I mean, that's you know par for the course. We're going to have some people who cannot work for whatever reason. Maybe they can't document it. Maybe right. they have some sort of trauma that like is difficult to explain in a medical sense. Right, and that, that, I think that's... They tried to get at that with all the different exemptions that they provided in the bill. But, yes, the other side of the argument is there's a reason why they need Medicaid and they don't have a job. And if we start threatening to take away their Medicaid, they may never get a job. Mm -hmm. So it's... Chicken-egg type situation. A chicken-and-egg type situation. So this, um, again, this is a bill that passed um, yeah. just this week. It also passed last year. Yes, um, part, of a, yeah. part of a budget bill, a uh, human services code bill that the governor vetoed in October. Right, and this was actually, just kind of to throw it back to October, this was contentious at the time because people oh, yeah. were very mad that, you know, this was fit into, kind of shoehorned into a large human services yes. code bill. Um, so, And that was, I think, the only code bill the governor vetoed that Right, year. and it, it contained other uh, contentious, we well, wanted. important, but also contentious and things that the governor didn't like. But right. this was the, the the one with the bright neon sign over it saying <laughs> veto, veto, veto. So um, upshot of that, though, is that Wolf is, again, not going to accept this. Correct, bill. yeah. All right. So, I mean, and anything else we should add on this? I mean, this was, again, cannot stress, this is one of those things where there's just an enormous amount of debate and feelings and, uh, you know, people doing sit-ins and committee hearings, that sort of thing. Um, So, I mean... Is it a bill? I mean, how much money? Do you know how much money it would actually save? We'd have no idea because we have no idea how much of that 500, roughly 500,000 person population Mm -hmm. actually will be, you know, affected by it because with all the all the different uh exemptions and such we we don't know and now the department of human services has provided yes a a ballpark a really large ballpark uh cost number for the the implementation implementation and and enforcement of it uh somewhere between 600 million and 800 million dollars yeah and most of that if not all of that uh would be borne by the state because unlike the food stamps program, which also has a work requirement, um, this would be an entirely state decision, whereas the food stamps program, it's a federal program and it's a federal work requirement, so the feds bear the majority of the burden of that. 
And this goes along with, too, I mean, I think Pennsylvania and lots of states have been attempting to, you know, lower their burden, have been trying yeah. in whatever way they can well, to... Well, this, this tails with what uh, the Trump administration has been trying to do. They, yes. In fact, they opened the door to these, right. these waivers say, that would allow this. This happened in January. Actually, yeah. this happened after the legislature attempted it the first time. It right. was in they had January. An idea, they had yeah. an idea that the Trump administration would start offering waivers. Right. And so, so far, seven states or three states have, like, done it. They yeah. have Medicaid work requirements now. I think seven states are in the process of right. doing it. Pennsylvania is not one of those states because we're not in the process of anything. No, no. So just it, kind I of... mean, it, the waiver would – to seek a waiver now would be purely optional right. uh, by the uh, – would be an alternative for the administration, the current administration, and they're not going to take that alternative. <laughs> no, I can't imagine they would. Anything else you want to add on the work requirements? No. Nah. All right. So that's that. Um, so those are the two, I think, big bills that we saw this week. Um, but we also... Well, what was interesting what, 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 was what did fly under the radar, yeah. it's another bill that the governor could very well veto, sure. uh, was this... Uh, Workers' Comp Drug Formulary Bill. Oh, yeah. I know you wrote about that. I didn't. But yeah. what was this? Um, this goes back a little bit, but uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote a big story uh, exposing a process by which lawyers and, uh, and uh, pharmacies and doctors were working together to sort of, I mean, the Inquirer made it sound pretty bad, <laughs> what they were doing to, to the workers' comp system. Um, so that sp- spurred some lawmaker to, uh, in fact, I think it's uh, Senator Don White, uh, to introduce a bill that would prevent the type of relationship that was existing between these various groups with the pharmacies. It's basically it like tracks the drugs that are being prescribed. Well, right? what it would do, what it would do is it would set up a list of drugs. Yeah. Um, most insurance plans. You know, whatever you have for insurance, have a list of drugs mm-hmm. that it'll pay for. And that's what a formulary is. Uh, workers' comp does not. Right. Um, so this would institute a formulary for workers' compensation, uh, which would mean some of the things that the Philadelphia Inquirer uncovered uh, would not be on that list. Now, what has happened is uh, there's been a, a big push by those groups to get lawmakers to vote against the legislation. And uh, in fact, even Governor Wolf has received uh, significant campaign contributions from this organization, again, uncovered by Philadelphia Inquirer. So you had this weird, uh, again, another weird coalition of Republicans and Democrats who get a lot of their support from labor unions uh, against this, and then mostly Republicans Supporting it. it, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting um, situation. It, the bill is now on its way to the governor, and he has been taking some flack uh, in some areas uh, for receiving money from these groups, and uh, people are urging him to give the money back and to sign the bill as opposed to veto it, which is probably what he's going to do. We will see. Um, yeah, that is interesting, and that's something. I don't have a huge background in, so thank no, it's, you for... I, I think it just, it's something that might come up during yeah. the election. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And that's what's on everyone's mind lately. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, uh, we had another, it's a lot of health-related stuff this week. Yes. Medical marijuana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we saw sort of an expansion of the, the rules uh, 
related to that? Well, they have to they have to put together regulations by sometime middle of next month, mm. uh, and so. Last week, the Medical Marijuana Advisory Board provided its recommendations to the Secretary of Health, who is tasked with pro- producing these regulations. So on Monday, she said that uh, based on the recommendations she received, she would be accepting all those recommendations and putting them into the regulations that will be coming out shortly. One of those uh, regulations significantly is that people can now, uh, people who are medical marijuana users can now purchase or will be able to purchase dry leaf marijuana to use in vaporizers. Mm -hmm. So basically... (laughs) And vaporizers only. (laughs) And vaporizers only. So this is what's interesting about this. Um, Dry leaf marijuana is the kind of marijuana that like college students buy or, you know, any recreational marijuana Put it in a wrapper and you smoke it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... The plant yes. dried. So now um, what they are saying is that if you do dry leaf medical marijuana, it lowers the price point. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier for people to get it. Yes. And if they use it in a vaporizer, they're not inhaling, you know, smoke and carcinogens. So it's, you it's, know, it's not healthier and safer than, than smoking, smoking it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, people are going to be upset about this. They didn't get a whole lot of attention this week. But um, I, I think, um, and I guess the question—the question will be what happens in the future, and whether or not people are as compliant with their doctor's orders <laughs> as the Secretary of Health believes they will be. <laughs> right, right. And asked this question, she said, "No, people are going to, you know, people are supposed to follow the instructions their doctors give them. We expect they will do so." Right. So. Um, that's that, I suppose. Yeah. So we will see, we'll see. if, um, and I think you brought this point up. We talked about it earlier this mm-hmm. week that um, you know when medical marijuana was legalized in Pennsylvania, one of um, you know sort of the conditions that a lot of people brought up was that you know we don't want be, people smoking this. Right. It's clearly stated in 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 the law. Yeah. It's yeah. eating it in a, some sort of food item or smoking it. Yes, illegal. Still illegal. <laughs> so, but this is it's not smoking it. This is using yes. it in a vaporizer. Right. So. So I, I, do, I just think a lot of people may be a little bit uncomfortable with how close that is to smoking it. I, I think particularly in the law enforcement community. <laughs> but that being said, it's... Because they're the ones that are going to be forced to enforce this. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, this is just its a way of ingesting what is a yes. medication. And people do have to have a prescription for this. Mm-hmm. I think Pennsylvania is still a very strict state where you can't just be like, I have back pain, and then they'll give you marijuana. You have If to... it's chronic back pain, you might be able to get it. Right. But you really have to prove that you have it. <laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, that is the, the big change that we saw there. Yeah. Um, there were a couple other things. Uh, they kind of they expanded um, the amount of uh, d- uh, diseases that you could have that right. would um, you know be able to qualify you for medical marijuana. Yeah, that some sort neuropathic of type type uh, conditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think chronic again pain disorders, yep. things like that. Mm-hmm. So a couple expansions, but that was sort of the big one. That the I big one is the dry leaf. About. Yeah, um, we had about ten minutes left now, Chris. We had a couple just sort of. I don't know, dramatic things that happened between lawmakers this week um, <laughs> that I wanted to bring up briefly. Again, it depends who you're talking to. Right. <laughs> it does. Um, we had a complaint that was filed yes. uh, between, it was an intra-House complaint yes. of a Democrat against a Republican. Mm-hmm. Representative Chris Rabb filed a complaint. He's a Democrat, filed a complaint against Representative Daryl Metcalf. Rabb sits on Metcalf's committee, the House State Government Committee. It's a committee that's known for high-profile outbursts, maybe. 
maybe. Yeah, um, entertaining meetings. Yes. Entertaining meetings. Uh, so what happened? Uh, the way I understand it. Uh, and I get, we were not there. We were not there. This has been widely reported. There was a conversation between the two of them following last week's meeting where they, the Republicans on the committee gutted and replaced um, legislation that would have created a commission to do the redistricting jobs, yes. uh, drop our legislative and congressional maps in the future. It's basically, they wanted an independent commission. This new bill gave the legislature more authority over the process, Correct. which was the opposite of what, what the they wanted to do. Wanted. Yeah. So anyway, lots of people are upset about this. Right. And uh, apparently, uh, Representative Rabb expressed his um, displeasure. Mm. I don't know the exact words that were used. Um, some say there was some profanity involved. Some say. Some say. Uh, and Representative Metcalf uh, responded that um, he wouldn't talk to him like that if it was on the street. Right. Which, so again, I'm paraphrasing. Things. I don't yeah, know what I think the exact... It, it was like we're, we would be, we'd be having a different conversation, conversation. on the street. Right. So, um, uh, so read into it what you will. So Representative yeah. Rabb took this to be a threat of violence. Yes. Metcalf is known as a person who has a concealed carry permit for yep. a weapon. He is rumored to carry um, a weapon on the House floor, although mm-hmm. that's not confirmed. Yeah. Um, but Rabb has brought this up in saying that you know he was right to feel threatened. Um, but... So anyway, Rab filed a complaint. He right. said he was, you know, kind of afraid of violence at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, House Republican um, spokespeople, I think House Republican spokesman Steve Miskin said that's ridiculous. Yeah. Metcalf's not going to shoot him. No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Rab said, I have a legitimate concern. And so he filed the complaint. And that goes to the House chief clerk, I believe, yeah. at this point, right? And as far as I know, they're still reviewing it. They're still reviewing it. Um, but I, I also think that kind of brings up, we've had a lot of... Um, talk in recent months about the House's harassment um, procedures and policies. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's, it is kind of rare to have an altercation, not even an altercation, well, an incident like this between yeah. lawmakers. I, again, it, it all depends how you read what somebody says. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Representative Rabb took it as, you know, uh, hostile. Mm. Uh, again, since I wasn't there, I could not tell you if it was hostile Hearing what he said, hearing the explanation that was given, it doesn't sound hostile to me, but hey, that's my opinion, only my opinion. (laughs) And I did speak to Representative Rabb real quickly earlier this week, and he said he feels that it's a hostile work environment, not even just in this instance, but like overall. And we have had incidents where like Metcalf has tried to kick Rabb out of the committee. That committee is, yeah, again, that committee is known for violent outbursts from various members. Nobody's hit each other, but people have thrown things. Figuratively speaking, violent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's that. Uh, real quick, we've got about six minutes left. I want to bring up another thing that's uh, just a little bit interesting and maybe amusing to some people. Um, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Joe Scarnati oh, yeah. has been – so this happened late last week, but yeah. um, it, it, the kind of fallout still happening. Um, he was ordered to pay out of pocket for um, like almost $30,000 out right. of pocket for costs related to a redistricting case. And the situation was he had the case moved from uh, Commonwealth Court State to court, a federal, federal court, court yeah. federal district court. And then they had one hearing and a lot of people had to come in from D.C. Mm-hmm. And then they like tried to move it back down and there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. Um, and this happened a while ago. But now uh, Scarnati a judge has handed down the decision that Scarnati was out of line, yeah. should not have attempted to move that. It was um, 
He said it was not in bad faith, but that it was unnecessary and right. frivolous. And so he ordered Scarnati to pay so $30,000. the federal 000. judge ordered him to pay it, yeah. yeah. Uh, Scarnati has said he has no intention of paying $30,000. Right, and they've appealed it, so. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I just want to know, because you've covered the Capitol for a while. Have you ever seen something like Never that happen? Never seen anything like it before. <laughs> and so, like, under what circumstances, like, can somebody be forced to pay something out of pocket like that I if have, he did this in his official capacity? I have absolutely no idea. I, I mean, honestly... Um, that, that it was a federal judge and he's compelling a state state lawmaker to uh, do something uh, that may or may not be really something that he can do. I don't know. I mean, it's just not a lawyer. Yeah, I wasn't. A, I was never a judge. And uh, yeah, it's it's just. It's unusual. It is unusual. Uh, Drew Crompton, who's Scarnati's lawyer. Uh, chief counsel, yeah. His chief counsel, longtime chief counsel, said he felt it was vindictive. I don't know on whose part it would be vindictive. I guess the judge. Um, but we don't know where the judge stands on, like, redistricting or anything. Right. I, I mean, so I don't know about that. But uh, they're very upset about this. I think, yes. um, you know, and Scar- um, Crompton was bringing up the fact that, like, or his concern that if, you know, we can be held personally liable for things in our official capacities, you know, I'm saying are as representatives. Right, as senators or legislators in general, yeah. That could cause some concern because they're involved in a lot of lawsuits. Yes, they do get sued a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, Chris, we're going to leave it there real quick. We've been asked by um, the Pennsylvania Legislative Correspondents Association, um, which we are both a part of at the Capitol, to promote something that we are uh, involved in next week. Next Monday, Um, Monday night. The gridiron. So every year... uh, I'm just going to do this real quick in a minute. Capitol reporters uh, and other people involved in state government do a comedy show. It supports our internship program, the mm-hmm. Capitol Reporting Internship Program. Uh, do you have any details on that? It's just uh, the, the internship program or the, the, the program itself? The, the, <laughs> the event itself. The event itself. So you can yeah, still we, buy tickets. You can still buy tickets. Uh, you can buy tickets all the way up to the, the, the event uh, Monday night. But uh, beware, if we do sell more tickets, you if you wait too late, you might not get a seat and you might not get the dinner that goes along with it. So there's a dinner. So if you are interested in this, uh, go to, what is it, legislativecorrespondentsassociation.com? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what our website oh, is. Google it. <laughs> Google um. it. But it's a good, it's a good fun night, uh, all off the record, and we make fun of one another and we have a good time. It's very funny. All right. So... Thank you to all of our guests today, and thank you to Chris Komisak for joining us. Thank this you for has me. been Smart Talk. It'll be back next week. Thank you.